Welcome to the Tally Room Podcast. I'm Ben Rowie. In today's episode, we'll be looking over the results of the New South Wales state election and how important preferences could be for one nation at the federal election. I'm joined by two guests today. My first guest is Sinead Canning. Sinead is campaign manager at the Women's Electoral Lobby, focusing on abortion law reform in New South Wales. Hello, Sinead. Hello, Ben. And my second guest is Stuart Jackson. Stuart is a lecturer in politics at the University of Sydney. Hello, Stuart. Hi, Ben. Hi, Sinead. Gladys Berejiklian's coalition government ended up holding on to majority government by a very slim margin, winning just 48 out of 93 seats. This gives the party one more seat than necessary to form a majority. Labor did not make many gains in terms of seats. They have gained the Sydney seat of Coogee and appear to have held on against the Greens to win the open national seat of Lismore. The minor parties did quite well, in the lower house at least, with the Greens strengthening their hold on their three seats, while the Shooters retained Orange and gained two other seats from the Nationals. The results are clear in the lower house, but the same can't be said for the upper house. Labor has gained a seat, as have One Nation. The Coalition looks set to lose three seats. The Greens have not regained the seat previously held by Jeremy Buckingham, but Buckingham himself has also performed poorly at the head of an independent group. The Shooters retained their one seat. There are three seats still in play, with the Christian Democrats Paul Green, the Liberal Democrats David Lionhelm, the seventh Labor candidate, the second One Nation candidate, Animal Justice Party, Keep Sydney Open and Sustainable Australia all in play. One interesting dynamic in this election has been the decline in the Greens' primary vote as they're squeezed in multiple directions. Yet it hasn't had an impact on the Greens in their key lower house seats where they have increased their margins. Sinead, what do you see as the reasons why the Greens are experiencing this squeeze? I think it's a typical thing. We saw um, quite a few minor parties um, contest a lot of seats this time. So I think um, one of your earlier posts this week said that um, there were 145 candidates that keep Sydney open. Um, The Animal Justice Party and Sustainable Australia ran. Mm. Um, Not saying that Sustainable Australia are really seen to be um, a left party, but they may be seen to be a left party um, by the wider public. Mm. Um, So I think that, yeah, that's a a huge difference from 2015 where there was only um, a few candidates for the Animal Justice Party and a few candidates for the Socialist Alliance across the state. So I think that... um, it's to be expected that the Greens would see a decrease in their primary vote and the fact that it's only gone down, I think, by less than a percent at this stage um, shows that, yeah, there wasn't too much of a squeeze, I think, um, considering the huge um, eruptions that were happening in uh, the party this time, like six months ago. I think it's a fairly miraculous result. I mean, in terms of their campaign, I don't think anyone would look at that campaign and say that it was the model campaign. They had four months where they had to, um, you know, squeeze something together with Christmas right at the start of it. So I'm, um, yeah, I wouldn't say that um, the Greens did badly this time. It does make you wonder about um, how much all those stories about internal conflict within the party really makes a difference. It seems to have caused some problems in terms of volunteer numbers or things like that, but actually maybe that didn't translate into votes. certainly doesn't appear to have translated in a significant way. Mm. Until relatively recently, I felt like it was was a pretty standard trope that most minor parties were on the right, and you had this kind of single consolidated minor party on the left and a whole bunch of competition on the right. And we are seeing, not just in New South Wales, but, you know, people like the Reason Party getting elected in Victoria and... Uh, now animal justice has two MPs and things like that, that there's clearly, there is this growth. So that's, that's absolutely true. I'm not actually that surprised that uh, the Greens vote has slipped slightly um, in the middle and outer rings in Sydney, particularly the outer rings. Um, I saw actually, interestingly, the 
where KSO was doing particularly well. So seats like Heffron and Coogee, um, the Greens vote was actually chewed a couple of percent, four percent in Coogee. Yet that's the area where you'd also expect if KSO that disappears between now and the next election, um, which it could easily do, depending on what policies uh, Berejiklian decides to put forward, uh, it could disappear. <laughs> when, you, when you're sitting on 48 seats, you know, you've got to be careful about what you put forward. That's but true. for argument's sake, say um, they decided that actually they'd relax some of the lockout laws, decide to open up Sydney a little bit, would that chew into that vote? Um, well, I'll... Being on a polling booth myself, I actually, uh, in Heffron, I actually watched the KSO volunteer and indeed the candidate for Heffron, who was there half the day. Um, they looked, sounded like, indeed attracted the same kinds of voters you would have expected from the Greens. Mm. So it had certainly eaten into the Green vote. Didn't look like it necessarily ate into the Labor vote that heavily. So I suspect the same also happened in seats like Coogee, where you otherwise would have said the process of gentrification would have been on the side of the Greens, certainly not on the side necessarily of Labor and not on the side of the Liberals into the long term. So I do think it's not unusual the fact that Greens vote went up in their course core areas, mm. certainly the, where they held seats. Uh, indeed, relatively significantly, if you're getting 5% swing towards you and it's not going to the Labor Party, it's telling you that people in those areas, one, are starting to identify as being in a green seat, and B, that they think it's a viable alternative. But they weren't able to capitalise on the good result in Lismore, may say more about North Coast politics, the fact that it was Janelle Safin, the former federal member for the area, mm. who was very well known and indeed not unliked, um, perhaps suggests that uh, there is an emergent non-national vote uh, in some areas. So it's almost a case of the politics of opposition. Do we like the Greens this time? Do we like Labor this time? Do you think um, that this sort of growth of these small minor parties, which are, I think probably will, will they'll, there will at least be a number of them in the future, does actually make things hard for the Greens, particularly in the upper house. Like they, they have a pretty solid two two seats per election. They did get to three in twenty eleven, but it was a it was a close run thing. But they they came close in twenty fifteen, um, and then missed out to animal justice. So you could say that that minor left block was still at three seats, and it seems pretty likely there'll be someone else kind of in that in that grouping who might get elected this time. Seems quite possible, um, but it does mean for the Greens like. In a, in a state where the quota is a lot higher, at least without group voting tickets, those other parties might have trouble competing with the Greens. But in New South Wales, they can chip away enough of that primary vote to affect the Greens in the upper house, even though in the lower house, maybe their preferences end up flowing back to the Greens where it matters. I think it depends on how strong the Greens campaign is and how cohesive the message is. Um, I don't think that the message was particularly... Um, all there. You had, you know, a couple of policies announced by um, someone called them tree Tory MLCs this time that uh, weren't really um, in line with the national platform for the Greens and also in line with uh, some of the policies that, you know, Jenny Leong and David Shoebridge were announcing. So I think that um, if there was a stronger campaign, you might have seen a more solid vote there um, that people may not have strayed um, to animal justice, KSO, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, that can only, um, that theory can be proved or disproved by what happens in four years' time. I think that there's an ability for the Greens in New South Wales to um, rebuild now. And I think that because they've had quite a positive result 
um, there's more capacity to grow and to actually learn from some of the mistakes this time. I think when you have a, a not great result like you saw in Victoria, there was not as much internal reflection on what went wrong. A lot of it was, you know, blaming um, external factors when obviously there are huge issues with their probity guidelines and probity committee there. So Sustainable Australia, <laughs> I feel like every time I tried to analyse them in the election, either on my own blog or when I was writing for The Guardian, the whole issue of whether they're of the left came up again and again and again. And I think I think there's a legitimate question there because I think there's a, there's a lot of people on the left who strongly object to their position on immigration. But I also look at where their votes come from and what their other policies are and the fact that there's quite a few ex-Greens who are supporters of theirs and there's like the, the main position that people most find offensive around immigration is shared by a I would say a a small but significant minority of the of the Greens base and membership. And I and I think it is an interesting question about where they fit in because Animal Justice and Keep Sydney Open were able to do pretty clear preference deals with Labor and the Greens. But Sustainable Australia was able to do a deal with them but had nothing to do with Labor and the Greens. And like where do you see them as fitting into the kind of political spectrum? This is it's an interesting question, simply because they don't fit into, if you like, the how we normally establish the if you like left right spectrum. We you know like to do left right. Keep in mind that the left right spectrum is you know tends to be based on economic outcomes. So while a party might appear to be, if you like, lefty-ish, uh, certainly centre left um, it could easily be right-wing on some policies. Uh, there was a time when the Greens' drug policy nationally was to the right of the Liberal Party, you know, or we, if we placed it, we could place it on that. It was, you know, worse than the, the Labor Party, as bad as the Liberal Party. So you're going, well, how does that fit? Parties will have a variety of different policies and that will place them into particular places. Where Sustainable Australia and you know various incarnations in the past have gone, though, is very much uh, about... Um, main test. I would have said they're a centrist party um, on the basis that uh, they're about maintenance of the status quo. Right? They're about maintaining the population. They want to maintain lifestyles. It's not necessarily, although it is implicitly, about maintaining a particular view of Australia. Uh, it is, though, very much based in, um, and I've heard this from people who've seen passionate Greens, uh, and yet they fall into this, and I would say a trap, of going, but immigration's the most important thing because if we don't have enough food, if we don't have enough of these things, um, we can't feed ourselves. And it's like this is a fear-driven dialogue or fear-driven um, set of thinking that is based on a set of presumptions. Oh, if we have more people. But where are these people coming from usually? So it's still driven by the fear of, you know, p- fear put about by Peter Dutton, um, the Conservative parties, and for a certain time, uh, the Labor Party, Paul, um, Michael Daly's comments about Asians with PhDs, right, still drives that particular fear about maybe we'll lose our lifestyle if there's too many people here. Oh, there isn't the carrying capacity. Oh, well, we have a problem with our natural um, wildlife. Maybe they'll all be driven away. Well, reality is that Australia has already developed large amounts of space. We use it for farming, we use it for industry, we use it for a multitude of different things. We actually do have space to actually take many more people in terms of simple carrying capacity. And when we talk simple carrying capacity, I'm talking like food. 
We have problems with water because we, in large parts of Australia, or parts are drying, parts are wetting. We're going to have a, a mix of different resource issues around water. Um, certainly if you're in inland Australia, we have a water problem. Um, we have not enough in terms of energy unless we switch to a renewable economy. Then potentially we could cover the renewable situation, the energy component. Mm. And then you start to go, well, where is the problem then? Is it something about the idea of Australian? And then what does that imply? And that's where I think people get a bit freaked out and go, well, hang on, it's just, this is racist, it's about immigration. Potentially it is. If it was a question of, and this is where I've think, been thinking that the Liberal Party would go post-Christchurch, is starting to go, well, maybe it's about the kind of Australia we want to have. Well, that can be dressed up in both ways. If it was Paul Keating, it might have been, we're part of Asia, we're an Asian country, we have to embrace that. And that means teaching Japanese and Chinese or Mandarin and in schools, yet we don't. I think that Sustainable Australia don't really have a nuanced take on um, population control and, and mm. ensuring that we have you know enough infrastructure as an immigrant. Um, I... I have never really felt demonised by Sustainable Australia, but I know that a number of immigrants that are not from Western Europe feel like they are, and mm. I think that they are right to feel that way. Mm. So, like Stuart was talking about energy and talking about water and stuff like that, we need to consider, you know, Australia's population and, and how we manage it um, as it is and how the immigration numbers are coming in and not consider really... Um, you know, whether we need to put a dampener on how many people are coming in, because I, I don't think that that really fully appreciates the scope of the issues that we have um, going forward with resources. Hmm. But there's another point to it as well, which assumes that everybody always wants to come to Australia. Right? There's a sort of a, an, an underlying assumption that this is the place <laughs> that everybody wants to come to. When that may well be a case of, well, they want to get away from some place that is full of war. Right? Absolutely. But they don't actually necessarily want to come to Australia. It's just that we, we have the tag safe on us at the moment. Uh, so the assumption about Australia being the lucky country, the, the, the promised land, I think is also a fallacy that we sometimes fall into. They're clearly competing for votes that are some of which are going to the Greens and it kind of does sort of suggest this complexity or contradiction in the Greens base that they're kind of, they have the Keep Sydney open audience and they have the Sustainable Australia audience and they're both trying to kind of chip away at different bits of the base. Um, You know, I'm going to butt in and just go, yes, but no. I mean, consider the 10% of uh, One Nation voters that put Greens number two, Hmm. right? Because there's the same group of people are in One Nation that you can also see in Sustainable Australia. I almost wonder if there's a little crossover between particular groups of people, not the overt you know, blue-collar Australia, working man, and it'll be man, um, in the country. So it's like not that version of Australia that some people in One Nation are promoting. Certainly Pauline Hanson appears to have promoted that idea, Mark Latham. But this slightly different, maybe slight, maybe slightly more nuanced view that's actually, no, it's about the kind of people in coming in and where are they coming from and, oh, we can't actually carry them. I'm worried about whether we can actually have the lifestyle we have. I think there's a crossover there. So I do actually think there's a group of people that some are green voters, but I think some of them are also refugees from the other parties as well. Mm. In 2016, I scrutinised some of the Senate count in Queensland and it was really interesting to find that there were a number of people that put one in the One Nation box and two in the Greens box Mm. and with other micros as well. And I think that, yeah, there'd be a a whole... um, 
bunch of interesting stuff that you could pick up if you ever did an academic article, like sampling a few of the votes. Because you never see that, you know, in the count because it'll stay with One Nation and it'll stay with the Greens until the last minute and then it's all, you know, mingled mm. in with all a bunch of other votes. So you, it's not really um, comparable, but it, it's an interesting concept. Mm. Like you said earlier, Stuart, we, it's very important to make clear that this is not a simple um a simple spectrum in terms mm. of left and right. Like there are, I think of it more as a sort of growths off in all different directions and there's sort of, there is a sort of spectrum at the heart of it, but there is also um, variations and triangular shapes and different things. Um, I mean, we need to move on, but I, I do think it's interesting as well that, you know, all of this has happened around a state election. States don't have any influence over immigration. The main thing I've heard from Sustainable Australia in terms of policies is largely... Um, anti-development, um, you know, opposition to, to new development in the cities. And I think there's an interesting context there when you talk about people wanting to keep places the way they are. If you, you focus less on the national picture and zoom down, maybe not even to the state, but down to the kind of metropolitan Sydney region of um, that kind of Labor and the Greens, their principles will talk a lot more about being willing to support development. But it is interesting that we have we've had this... So much of the politics of Sydney has been about how much we're growing and how we're coping with it. But um, yeah, it's the same in, in Brisbane, and that's what a, a lot of the vote, um, and a lot of the changes in the vote over the past like decade in, in inner city Brisbane have been about development and everything like that. I think it's a key challenge, to be honest, of the left and the left parties aren't meeting it at the moment. They need to, you know, be brave in talking about development and making sure that yeah, sure it's sustainable, but it needs to actually cater for. Um, mm the population and none of them are really stepping up to the plate at the moment and I think that that's going to be a key issue in future state elections. Maybe we can just touch on briefly with the upper house count. We were just saying before that there apparently has been a lot of votes counted today but we still have a long way to go and we don't have a very clear picture. Um, do do we, either of you have any thoughts about what, what's going to be critical to, to deciding that result? The other 80% of the votes? Um <laughs> No, slightly flippantly, we're up to 20%. Um, what's going to be critical at the end of the day is that if the Greens stay where they are at 10.7, right, that means they've, they've elected two people and have an over-quota vote, right, mm. which may, may stay with them. This is what I was going to say about last time, is that you know if you've got a percent, percent and a half available, yes, you can be in the race with you know animal justice at 1.7 or 2%. So it may well be that the last few seats are the ones that take the most time to count. Um, you know, And the ones where preferences will really matter. Well, that's right. And if KSO didn't make it, for instance, you know, would their preferences be allocated? Would people have actually flowed on? Mm-hmm. Same with Animal Justice, who are sitting at 2%. You know, they may well get... KSO over the line, but if the Greens vote holds up and actually captured a you know a small amount, you know, a bit from Socialist Alliance for argument's sake, then another point four of a percent, you know, and it pushes them past say Animal Justice, does that put the Greens back on the count? This is why I go well. There's an awful lot of counting still to go. Mm. The, if the vote holds up, then it means particular things. Um, the fact is, I don't think we're going to know a lot about the count until well maybe next week or the week after, and I think it's going to be some time. What we can say is that it's going to be a really interesting council. It's going to be one that the Liberals are going to have to do a lot of negotiating because they'll have 16-odd seats. Uh, That means there's an awful lot of negotiating to do with a a mixed crossbench, not even a solidified crossbench. 
Uh, yes, you could try and win over the Greens. It's going to be hard. So you go to your, your usuals, your animal, uh, not animal justice, your um, shooters, fishers and farmers. Get those two mixed up. Shooters, fishers and farmers and Christian Democrats. But the Christian Democrats might just be one. Then you'll leave one nation. And then it could be um, David Lanholm. And then it could be. Yeah. And it could be. I don't think that, I, like the initial count, I think, had the Greens on like 8.5 or 8.25. So I don't see them getting to a stage where they're significantly you know, up to nearly an extra half a quote. I think that they'll stay around the 9%, which is not a huge um, decrease in their vote from 2011, which is interesting. Um, I think that, yeah, the council will be very interesting. It it might be, you know, so you've got your um, president of the council and then you've got the left, or sorry, the left parties potentially on 19 and then uh, it could be nearly 20 and then you've got the right on 21. So it, it could be really interesting to see what happens and um but I still think, you know, if you do have Lionhelm in there, that he will just do whatever deal he wants to mm. with um, the Libs and Nats um, and not actually um, stick with what his policies actually say. The shape of the of the other house that you just described reminds me a lot of what the Senate has looked like for the last couple of years, quite different to the state upper house where generally governments have been able to govern with one or two parties. And, you know, the shooters and the Christian Democrats have usually been pretty disciplined about, like, the main thing they do is they vote on legislation in the upper house and, yeah, they, they cut deals and they get things that they want out of it and all that kind of stuff, but they, they're, they're, they're able to be worked with by government. And I do think, like, probably Lionhelm, his, his approach federally has largely been to go along with the government if he gets elected, but I could imagine if they're needing five, six, seven members of the crossbench to vote with them and you have egos like Fred Nile and Mark Latham amongst them, I can imagine it being quite difficult to, to get them all in a row at the same time and uh, quite messy. Mm, Very interesting. One of the big stories last week was the will-they-won't-they game in terms of where the Liberal and National parties will put One Nation on their how-to-vote cards at the federal election. Scott Morrison eventually conceded that the Liberal Party would put One Nation behind Labor on their how-to-vote cards. This concession didn't cover the National Party or say anything about whether One Nation would receive preferences ahead of the Greens or other contenders. Um, So, Stuart, what impact do you think this decision is going to have on the federal election? I think it'll have a reasonable amount because the Labor Party has found that they can get a certain mileage out of this particular decision. They've been able to hammer on the fact that it's not all parties, it's just Labor. Oh, so what, they're just responding to one party. No, that means they're still prepared to preference one nation. And if one nation are in bed with, it doesn't matter with in bed with the NRA or the NRMA, right, if they're somehow linked to gun violence, then they should be an anathema. Shouldn't they? Of course, there's lots more going on there. I mean, if we had the Al Jazeera reports, which in some respects, you know, was a bit of a setup. It's not great journalism. I had a journalist today actually say, what were they thinking? Oh, actually, there was a whole lot of other stuff going on in the background in terms of Al Jazeera. And you did have two guys drinking whiskey, you know, having someone propose that they get money from America um, while they were drunk. So you could say, well, this was a sort of sleazy little deal done by Al Jazeera. That's nothing new for James Ashby and One Nation. It's almost like, well, that's what they would do. James it, Ashby's One Nation. <laughs> Sorry, keep going. Well, there you go. Yeah. You know, there you go. But simple point remains, though, that I don't think it affects One Nation so severely. I don't think it has a dramatic effect on One Nation. Now, 
because I think it'll it'll be it's Pauline. You know, they're trying to set Pauline up. This is the Donald Trump effect. It's not going to have any effect on them. It hasn't had a, a full effect on the Liberal Party other than to say, all right, we'll put you ahead of them. And okay, maybe that helps the Labor Party. But then what about, you know, not that they'll necessarily offer preferences. I think that the Liberal Party is shaping up to do a just vote one, right, and not preference on. Uh, in, make the, Labor in the Senate? In both. Mm. You know, they're shaping up for a just vote one. Um, in one sense, makes sense. You know, if you want strong, stable government, vote Liberal. You know, otherwise you can vote whoever you like for. Hmm. Right? Um, and I think that'll scatter votes. Well, that may make it harder for third-party challenges because there's no deals to be done. Um, where that leads to the Labor Party, will the Labor Party then... Well, actually, they're sitting pretty at this point in time. If they're sitting on 53 54% of the polls, they're not affected. If you like, this is the part where they get to... Um, well, Penny Wong does get to say, oh, it's virtue signalling to talk about refugees, etc., well, you can, you're in the box seat, it's not affecting you. Hmm. So I'm not of the opinion it'll actually have an enormous impact upon the federal election. One nation in and of itself may do because they may well poll at 5 or 6%. Polled 6% in New South Wales, you know, that's from their upper house vote, so that's going to impact. They're hmm. soaking up half a conservative quota. They may still elect people. Queensland... Unlikely in New South Wales, but still half a quota is half a quota. Yeah, I, I can't see it making a difference to One Nation's primary vote. Um, having experienced what um, what they're like in Queensland over the past few years and the resurgence of them in the past few years. I think that when it comes to preferences, preferences are a campaign tool largely. I don't think they make a difference really to the end result, especially in a system where it's compulsory preferential voting. Does it make a difference? You mean, in... you mean the, the preference recommendations, don't yeah, you? Yeah, yeah. So um, talking about preference and refer- sorry, preferencing recommendations in the media, it's a huge story for the media. Media loves to talk about it because it's just something that, you know, goes to the values of this party and that party. And um, it's a big story because the other opposing parties that are commenting on those parties' recommendations um, want to make a point about that party. So in terms of, um, like, do those recommendations make a difference in optional preferential voting? Yeah, totally. They made a huge difference when, you know, the Greens didn't preference um, any party in 2012 in the Queensland election and same in New South Wales in the 2011 election, you know. There were some line ball seats where Labour MPs lost their seats because the Greens didn't recommend preferencing. Um it was the same, I think, in um, 90... Yes, back in 90, the 90s. 96, 98 in, in the Queensland election, and, and they were totally freaked out. Mm. Um, and that's when I think John Howard made his original decision not to preference One Nation or to put them last or whatever. So in terms of will it make a difference to the election outcome, um, no, not really. Mm. And, um, those preference recommendations but, won't make a but difference. But where I think it will make a difference is, you know, we're talking federal election, we're talking about uh, compulsory preferential. Um, they may still just do a, a, a basic preference um, allocation for House of Reps because they don't want people to vote informally, particularly in New South Wales, people are way too used to just marking one on the ballot paper. But it may well be they say number all boxes, just put Liberals first, right? Um, because then they don't have to allocate it, people do what they want. Liberal Party has very disciplined voters, and I think it's that discipline that is important. If they can, they can actually, if they come third, make a difference as to who's going to win, and that could put a Green out, it could put a, a One Nation out, particularly if, you know, well, 
For argument's sake, if one nation ran, Pauline ran in the lower house and actually got 25%, right, it could be the difference between being elected or not being elected. It could make the difference between not that I think Clive Palmer, well, Clive Palmer's not running, um, I don't think he's running in Fairfax again. Um, Clive, you know, but like last time, could he then catapult past? Can it make the difference between which independents elected or not? So Certainly it'll make a difference in the upper house if they say just put Liberal 1 and recommend no, nothing else or put Liberal 1 and Christian Democrats too. That has a, a flow-on effect. Not that Christian Democrats so, will get anywhere. Yeah, so I mean they, they obviously – that is one option to deal with the media issue. But it, it does feel to me like, yeah, absolutely they're preferencing – their preference recommendations don't make a big impact on the actual vote flows. But I certainly think it could be something that dogs the government until the election and is one of these kind of media stories where they're like, like you said, and it kind of distracts. And I think that like over the past week, you've seen what narrative um, the government has latched onto. And I think that they're going to continue on doing it, which is as soon as they're asked about that particular preference deal that they go on to say then that the Greens are mm. really extreme and why are Labor giving preferences to the Greens over the Liberals, which I think, to be honest, um, the first time that Morrison said that, I was worried. I thought, you know, this was literally a week after the co-leader in the New Zealand Greens was assaulted and bashed um, on his way to Parliament. So I think that that rhetoric, to be honest, is really dangerous. Um, and I think that it needs to be continued to call out, be called out by journalists. I think it is being called out, but they've just shown like a dogged determination in the past couple of days to continue using the language. I think it'll be interesting to see if that actually helps the Greens. Um, but we'll see. There's a point there as well. I mean, John Howard started this years ago, you know, Extreme Greens. It's, so it's got actually a long history of mm. calling Greens extreme, um, and they're the real enemy. I mean, that, as I say, it goes back to the, you know, I was going to say the turn of the century, but it kind of does. It goes back to the post-2001 election in you know, 2004, 2007. They're the real danger. Despite, you know, their leaders not actually reflecting what the policy platform really is. Um, their leaders don't really match up with what the policy platform is. And you can see that in the way that they watered down um, the dental care policy this time, where the national policy platform says that it should be universal, whereas their policy that they put forth a couple of weeks ago just says, you know, that they'll extend it to um, people on the um, disability pension um, and pensioners. Clearly, they're not very extreme. Uh, so that the the, the motif of extreme greens is to create, if you're not a stalking horse, but they're to create this idea of they're the partners of um, the Labor Party. We can tar the greens, and tarring the greens doesn't gives have them a equivalent. Great, yes, gives equivalence. But it also mm. has no blowback for them. But they can say greens equals Labor, and they're both tarred by the same brush. In the House of Reps, this probably won't make a big difference. The Liberals are unlikely to be third place in any seats. You know, it could play out. I'm I'm sceptical about the uh, Liberal Party not issuing preferences idea. I think they're unlikely to do that, but it will be interesting if that does come about. The Senate. So in the Senate, at the last election, most parties marked six preferences on their how to vote. Yeah. Most voters marked six preferences. That was pretty much universal. I think it was like... 83% numbered one to six, and then there was a few more on top of that who numbered more. I do wonder a bit about how much, whether the issue is not so much that the Liberal Party would be putting One Nation on their how to vote card, but whether their how to votes end up not really expressing a view on this issue. And I mean, 
The One Nation didn't really get elected in 2016 thanks to exhaustion. They largely got elected because a lot of people preferenced them and the double dissolution helped. But how that might play out in the upper house where uh, the concept of putting One Nation last is is nonsense because you don't, like, there might be 20 parties on the Senate ballot and you only number six of them. So, you know, it seems quite likely the Liberal Party won't issue a preference to Labor or the Greens or One Nation and whether that kind of, that puts this kind of big, block of liberal votes kind of out of play or if you know i mean not that many people are marking preferences according to the how to vote in the senate they're mostly picking their own so maybe it doesn't but Mm. yeah i can't um i think it'll be interesting regardless of what they do and i think that they'll be fine if they don't put one nation on the recommendations for the upper house like labor don't really have too much to stand on there because Mm. the rebuttal from the liberals will be fairly simple that they decided to not preference them at all Mm. Unless they do something interesting with the card. You know, they work through, they uh, um, say, vote one Liberal. Um, go across the top, two to Christian Democrats, three to Australian Conservatives, um, four to um, Shooters and Fishers, for argument's sake, five to Labor, six to One Nation. Now, the assumption is that it won't get there because it'll stop at Labor. But should Labor already have elected... Right and be have have no quota at that point, mm. nothing left over. Then potentially that is a vote that could flow on to one nation. Mm. So potentially it could elect one nation. Hmm. That it will be interesting to see um, what the one nation vote is like um, in Queensland. Whether it stays um, similar to what it was in two thousand and sixteen, whether it goes up, whether it goes down. Um, one thing that happened after the Longman by-election last year was that people pointed to One Nation getting 15% in comparison to the 12% they got in 2016. But what was missed was that there was the state election right in the middle of that. And in the state electorates that overlap with Longman, um, the vote was like 22, 23%. Mm. And I feel like no one ever really saw that. And I think that because of that, um, my feelings are that you know the one nation vote might go down one or two percent in the lower house um and maybe in the upper house as well but um i guess with that long win by election there wasn't the pauline factor pauline hansen wasn't on the Mm. campaign trail all the time with the candidate Mm. um so i think that's something to watch so the the rumours now are that the federal election could be called this weekend for um may 11 or may 18 what do we think about that I know a couple of people have been saying it today and I had the thought like three weeks ago, which is that Morrison calls the election on Wednesday and refuses um, to give Shorten the opportunity to do a budget and reply speech, which I think, to be honest, he's probably thought of because he thinks of himself as a marketing genius and it's actually it would be a huge um, a really foolish thing to do because you'd, you know, get to the point where, you know, Shorten's budget and reply speech might even be broadcast by some of the um, mainstream uh, channels, uh, which is just a, a thought bubble. But I would not be surprised to see that happen because his um, he doesn't have a great strategic mind, in my opinion. Um, so I think that, yeah. That could be interesting to see what happens there. So I've heard this idea about the budget reply on Wednesday. My understanding is there was a bit of chatter about that in 2016, actually, and Turnbull got beaten up a bit about it because it was another election where the budget, there was a budget and then we went straight into an election, which, by the way, is going to keep happening until there's something that disrupts the timing of elections in this country. It's going to keep happening every three years. But um, the 
uh, I think one of the things that will hold them up on it is that they need um, appropriations to be passed. Mm. Um, and I think it would backfire. But, you know, just because something is a bad idea doesn't mean that Scott Morrison won't do it. It's never stopped them before. No. I'm, I'm not, see, I'm not convinced because I think if they did that, Shorten and the Labor Party would make the whole election campaign a budget and reply speech. Mm-hmm. They just go, okay, fine. If you're going to try that trick, we're only going to talk about this and we're going to go through it step by step. They have good policies to release. They've been releasing them and they'll just make it all a, one long budget in reply speech. And you can just see Shorten saying, as part of my budget in reply speech, mm-hmm. and remind everybody that mm-hmm. it was a trick. Mm. Right, a, a clever little trick. I also don't think that the Liberal Party will want to play exactly that game. And you know, Morrison might think he's uh, a, a clever cookie, but I suspect there's a few other people that say no, um, because one day they'll do it back to us, perhaps next time, mm. right? And we'll be just as cranky about it. So why don't we just let it run? Right? He gets his, his moment of glory. Nobody covers it. It gets ignored. And then we move into the election. Yeah, totally. Look, I think that that's more likely. Um, but considering how petty he's been in the past, it's an, well, yes. an open possibility. Can't put it above him. He, I mean, he clearly has a has a thing for coming up with tricky, sneaky mm. things that mm. work, and they very rarely do. Um, and they're kind of desperate, right? Like they're kind of when when someone's got their back to the wall... You can't always predict what they'll do. I haven't seen... There was supposed to be a new poll, not a news poll, but uh, Ipsos or Galaxy. One of the two was late. Um, if that poll you know, it comes out and it's sitting in the 54-46 range, we've had that consistently now for several months. That means the start of the campaign, they are behind. And they're not sitting at 51 uh, keeping in mind that and I'm quite, for quite a number of elections, where you start is where you finish. Maybe a couple of percent around it, and if it's tight, then that can shift. But if you start way behind, unless you have a, a, a dare I say, um, an Asians with PhD moment, you're usually pretty right. Hmm. So this is the bit where I go, no, I think the problem is that if they don't start out well, they're not going to end well. And it's not going to stop any of the infighting or the problems around policy. I mean, it's worth reminding everyone that this government goes into this election without a majority. Uh, After the redistributions, they only hold 75 out of 151 seats. And if you assume that they can't win, that they don't win Chisholm um, and that they don't win Wentworth, which isn't a big assumption, they could win Wentworth, but all of a sudden they're at 73 and they they need to actually gain three seats in order to form a majority government. And it looks pretty tough, not just in the polls, but they're they're literally not in a not in an election winning position, even before any any um, votes have changed yeah. hands. and I think that you know Queensland really held up for them in two thousand and sixteen, and I really don't think that that will be the case this time around, hmm. um, especially in southeast Queensland. You know where after the um, state election, um, there's three um, LNP MPs in Brisbane now out of like the 30, 40 seats that are held there. Um, and um, in the federal election, they held on to those seats, um, not handily either. They're all, you know, there's six seats or something within the margin of like 2%. Um, so yeah, I think Queensland will be interesting to watch and I think you'll see a similar thing to what happened in 2007 um, with those seats going to Labour. The issue of course as well and I mentioned policy uh, is of course the budget will be delivered. The budget does have lots of money in it and there will be lots of specific goodies 
And certainly I've been being asked you know, um, uh, by the media about, well, what do I think is going to be in the budget? And I say, well, if I had this crystal ball, no. Um, the issue, of course, is going to be how much money will they have to splash? You know? So they'll do a ca- splash the cash. Will it be targeted money or will it just be general money? So will they just be throwing it at every aged person, every disabled person, every sort of a generalised, oh, maybe we can just win votes from anywhere? Or will it be targeted? Um, they announced the uh, Australian China um, Foundation with $44 million, which is a reasonable oh, yeah. amount of money, a lump of money going in there to foster you know, trade with China, business actually, a business, agriculture, culture and the arts, sort of almost a reverse Confucius centre. Um, that is aimed, I suspect, at the Chinese community in Australia. Mm. Um, why is it doing that? Well, it's got to make up for Asians with PhDs. Um, how much of the policy that we see or the budget material that we see is res- is responding to current issues that they have with policy, trying to patch up um, the problems that they've developed over the over this last few years, the problems with NDIS, the underspend in NDIS, which is still one and a half billion. Now it's not you know three or four, but it's still a billion and a half. Well, that's an underspend. The problem with the consultants in there, how much of it is going to be catch up? So not actually new policy, but catch up on broken old policy. Yeah, look, I think it's almost certainly going to be a targeted budget. It's an election budget. Election budgets are election budgets. They all have the same characteristics. So I, yeah, 100% can see, you know, and I think that the uh, road funding that came out today was like four out of five um, of the seats where they announced the funding were really marginal liberal seats. So I can't really see um, a change there. Did you have one last quick point? I did, and it was actually to do with Something that's been, uh, well, it's been covered here, it's been covered in the media lots and lots and lots over the last, well, since 2013, which is women in the Liberal Party, mm-hmm. which has started to become, well, certainly when you look at, you know, whether it's Karen Phelps or Zali Stegall and her campaign launch, which apparently went off really well, the, I'm wondering now whether the that is still, well, how big an issue it will be for the Liberal Party, the fact that they have not started been losing in the polling in terms of women voters um, you know they've lost other demographics but losing one whole well half the population as it were and still not having the people necessarily to put it forward so not necessarily selecting the high profile women allowing them essentially to become high profile independents uh, and how much that will play into the election hmm. yeah i think that there's a continuing problem. I think that someone in Scott Morrison's office has told him he needs to be more warm towards women, which is where you see the photo of him, you know, kissing Gladys on the cheek and him going in for the hug with Jacinda Ardern when she clearly wanted to shake his hand and that was it. Um, you just can't pull it off. No, it's 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 like when he, you know, on the day where the Christchurch massacre happened and it looked like he was smirking throughout his entire press conference and he can't really uh, convey warmth, I think, and it's really interesting. Not that, like, you know, Shorten can do that um, effectively either, but I think that, yeah, Shorten seems a bit more genuine and doesn't smirk um, through press conferences like Scott Morrison seems to do when the topic is serious. But I think in terms of, like, the liberal and the women problem, it's not improving. And, like, looking at, 
you know, the New South Wales election, they just announced their cabinet yesterday. Um, you have a cabinet where there's 24 people in it, five out of the 24 are women. Um, of the 17 Liberals that are in it, only two are women. Of the seven nationals, it's actually three women. Mm. Um, so that's really interesting. You've got, you know, Bronnie Taylor is the new Minister for Women and her speech on safe access zones last year was amazing. You have someone... Um, is she a Liberal or a national? She's a national. Yeah, yeah. and her um, brother-in-law is Angus Taylor. Yeah. <laughs> Which is interesting. Um, and then you have um, Sarah Mitchell, who's their new Minister for Education, um, who's an MLC as well as Bronnie Taylor. So I think that that's really interesting to see that the Nationals are promoting women um, and the Liberals are demoting women because there's only two now um, from the Libs. And yet that, le- that leaves me wondering about the, the Nationals nationally. Mm. Um, and I have Joyce wanting to come back and you're going... But you already have a problem, as it were. You've already shown that you have consistent issues with women in your workplace, women uh, more generally. Um, Can the nationals nationally, you know, learn anything from state nationals? So there's been quite a different dynamic with the state nationals for a while. And not just Mm -hmm. this, but also like... Uh, you know, Adrian Pickley, when he was education minister, yeah. was quite a progressive education minister. Yeah. And this is, it's kind of, it's a fascinating state government because it's a sort of yeah. contradiction in different policy areas and different dynamics. Yeah. And it doesn't quite, it's not as easy to categorise as the federal liberals. Uh, you know, it's not, it would be silly to call it a progressive government. There's plenty of areas in which it's not, but um, hmm. it has a more complicated it's, it's harder to yeah. pinpoint on the spectrum if we go back to our original topic. So that's about it for this episode of the Tally Room Podcast. Thank you to Stuart and Sinead for joining me. Thank you, Stuart. Uh, my pleasure. And thank you, Sinead. Thank you. So you can find this podcast on your podcast app of choice. If you like the show, please consider rating or reviewing us on iTunes. You can follow the Tally Room on Twitter at the Tally Room or like us on Facebook. Information about this podcast is available at www.tallyroom.com.au. And you can email questions or feedback to the tallyroom at gmail.com. This show is recorded in the studios of 2SER Radio in Sydney. Thanks to Chris DeBro for writing the music you hear in this episode. Once again, thanks for listening. <laughs>